I'm Paul. I'm George. And I play the drums. From Pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network, it's Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi LaPrette. And Chachi's co-host, Beatles instructor at Suffolk University, David Galan. Well, hello, everybody, and thank you for joining our podcast today. It's Get Back to the Beatles. My name is Chachi LaPrette, and if you don't know me, I have a Beatles show for, gee, over 25 years or so called New England's Breakfast with the Beatles, heard in three New England states. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Get Back to the Beatles is brought to you in part by Subaru of New England. And with me is my trusted partner. I've been friends with uh, this man for many, 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 many years. He has taught the Beatles class at Suffolk University in Boston. We were just discussing before we opened the mics for about 16, 17 years. We call him our Beatles professor, Mr. David Gallant. How are you today, David? Chachi, I'm doing great. You say, uh, what did you say, Tr- uh, trusted partner or sidekick, yes. uh, loyal sidekick, uh, uh, Robin, to your Batman. In fact, today, Chachi, was uh, first day of Beatles class. Oh. So, uh, yes. So just getting into the uh, a little bit under the surface and making sure that people know what textbooks to get and that they should have them all starting for next week when we really get into, you know, our guest mentioned before we started, Chachi, we're going to meet him very soon that he said he went to college at the wrong time. He wished he had taken a Beatles class. Well, my students are also learning that, you know, next week, really, we're talking about post-war England. So not really quite getting into the music just yet. They have to know the scene. They have to know the context. So we are off and running and masked up all together now in class, but we're going to make it through it. Now, when, just briefly, because we want to get to our guests, but when you have a new class, can you identify the problem students, the ones who are only there to get a free ride for a credit or two, or are they Beatles fans? Are they? Because some of your students had never even been introduced to the Beatles. I remember they, a couple they, of students. They had not, right. So I deal with all first-year students, what traditionally have been called freshmen. So it's, uh, it would be hard-pressed for them to be coasters and completely jaded about things they may get there in a few weeks but right now they are all you know hopeful and expectant and everything like that so <laughs> and as <laughs> mr our producer david yaz just texted a question uh, not a question but he says every class has a ringo i don't know if that was for air but i take offense <laughs> to that as being a friend of ringo's for many years so. i know i knew you would sorry <laughs> thank you yes so that's david yaz our trusted spiritual leader the entrepreneur behind the boston podcast network and the producer of our sessions so once again thank you for joining us we have a really special guest today professor gallant had a brilliant idea recently he said chachi why don't we do a segment Within our show, sometimes it takes up the entire podcast. It's called My Beatles Story. And when he suggested that, I thought, what a great idea, because we want to talk to people who had interactions with the Beatles or in some way are connected really uniquely to the Fab Four. And our guest today is one of those. He was introduced to me by our good friend Mitch Axelrod from Fab Four Free For All, such a great man. And he said, you got to hear this track by the Erevans. I hope I'm saying that correctly. I'm pretty sure I am. And it's called Swinging London. And I love the track. And so I got on the phone recently with our guest and we talked for, gee, an hour, maybe an hour and a half. And his stories, I have never met anyone with the stories that this man has. As a teenager, back in 1969, our guest wrote, produced, recorded an album worth of material. He was just a teenager. He was a child prodigy because of his musicianship. And he spent time recording an album at Abbey Road Studios. Back then it was EMI. And you know what? And the Beatles were there recording at the same time. So 
I wanted to bring this man on and share his story. It's so cool. We welcome Mr. Tom Hartman. Hello, Tom. Hey, big shout out up there in New England. <laughs> Thank you. Did I get everything right in my introduction? Yeah, except child prodigy. I wouldn't go that far. But what do you mean? I well, maybe there are people. And listen, we do our research, right, Professor? Yeah. Especially the professor. Yeah. Uh, and I saw child prodigy somewhere, but I will accept your objection to that and respectively. I think that would be more in the John and Paul category. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tom, you, as a teenager, you did a lot. I mean, when I was a teenager, Professor, when you were a teenager, I mean, gee, I didn't know what I was doing, let, let alone, you know, I was playing the drums. But we're pretty lost <laughs> as a teenager, right, Professor? <laughs> well, I mean, maybe a little bit. Maybe I had an idea of what I was, of what I was going to do, but I didn't seem to find myself either accidentally, on purpose, you know, or by design, that close to sort of the epicenter of world-shaking events, meaning whatever the Beatles did, all right? And well, so to, for Tom, to, at that age, to have been that close to what was going on, to the middle of the scene, and not just being an observer, we've talked to many of those, Chachi, and God bless them, they all have their role in it, but he's also a practitioner while this is going on, right? Surrounded by folks who are doing it at, at a very high level and influencing every everyone else. So it's those kind of stories in our Beatles story genre that I really do find fascinating. So it is quite something to do with that at that age. In other things that I've written that uh, Tom has said online, I guess I'm always... Um, uh, curious about, well, if that happens so young, right, that whole feeling that we might have, you know, what happens after, you know, how do I keep that with me for all of its good things, as opposed to thinking, I was there when I was that age, boy, I should have appreciated it more, but I think he did. Yes, and we'll bring him into the conversation. (laughs) We'll bring him into the conversation in a second. But listen, if you're a 17 year old and you have a label interested in your band and they want to record you, I would have recorded in my kitchen. But Tom (laughs) was like, no, I want to go to London and record at EMI Studios. Is that correct, Tom? Absolutely. Yeah. And to what David mentioned is a little bit of setup of how I got to be doing what I was doing at 17. David mentioned that his students are going to, you know, they're at a point in studying where they're studying the culture and what's going on in England in general before the Beatles even are, enter the scene. And for me, that was that was in the late 50s when I, I happened to, I wasn't playing guitar, I was whatever, I was six or seven or whatever. And I heard a record by Frankie Avalon called Gingerbread. And it came on, and in the middle of this little silly kind of thing, there's not like a four-bar guitar break. There's not an eight-bar guitar break. There's a 16-bar guitar break in it, and I just flipped. I, I had never heard anything like it. I asked my dad, I said, what is that? He said, that's an electric guitar. And from that moment on, um, you know, you could forget schooling, forget anything. I just want to know everything there is to know about guitars. And a couple of years later, on the radio came Bird Dog and the intro to that. And I heard, you know, them play the rhythm guitar part that starts out. And I said, what's that? They said, well, that's a guitar, but that's called an acoustic guitar. I said, this guitar stuff has got to be the greatest thing in the world. So I, I got a guitar. My parents got me one. And I just 
became lost in listening to pop music in my bedroom, a little 45 spinning around, became wildly enamored of Rick Nelson doing Young World and all that traveling man stuff. And then the Beach Boys came out. So the point of all this is I had a pretty healthy appreciation for pop music and guitars and the sounds and what, you know, what, what a song is supposed to do if you're in that genre. And that, I think, made me react to I Want to Hold Your Hand more than even the average person might. When that, I, I saw them on the little CBS Walter Cronkite excerpt and they were playing She Loves You, a bit of that. And I thought that was amazing, but mainly amazing visually because the audio wasn't that great on it. And uh, a couple months later, it was December in St. Louis. It was cold. It was snowing. My mom came home and said, oh, I listened on the radio. They said that group that you've been raving you saw in the news, they're, they're going to play uh, a new song by them at 7 o'clock tonight on KXOK. <laughs> so I listened, and I want to hold your hand, got played. And because of that little backstory of already being a big guitar fanatic and Everly Brothers fanatic from a vocal standpoint especially when I heard I want to hold your hand I just it 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 just changed everything in my life and I don't mean to be dramatic but I had never heard guitars like that coupled you know with the sing because the Everly Brothers were really cool but they were mainly singing great vocals over kind of soft acoustic playing stuff. And then Chet Atkins would chime in and do some cool electric stuff. But they were, you know, it was a little more subdued. This was this rip-roaring Lennon Rickenbacker rhythm guitar that was like blasting out of the radio with that Everly Brother-ish kind of harmony uh, going over it. And I had just never heard anything like it. And uh, that was it for me because I basically flunked seventh grade over it because all I did was sit in my bedroom, did homework? What's homework? And, and learn the Meet the Beatles album and ask myself, you know, well, why does that sound like it does there? What are they doing to do that? And to this day, I still do. I just want to know how everything works and how they're doing stuff. And so I was, by the time I was 17, you know, and had a band locally and stuff, I was firmly entrenched in pop music and guitars and harmonies and all that stuff. Chachi, that's beautifully said. And, you know, Tom, we over the years, you know, you, we've read so many, I've read so many accounts very similar to yours on this side of the pond where people have that origination point, a young guy with a guitar, but when they hear, I want to hold your hand, everything changes. You know, today in class, we talk about that first moment for John Lennon when he's listening to the crackling transistor radio Luxembourg and he hears heartbreak hotel. And for him that transformed everything. So then this gets repeated on the other side uh, of the pond, but to actually hear someone say it like yourself, a musician, the way you just packaged it there, this is why we do these segments because that's better than almost any time I can read it from someone or anyone who, you know, Tom Petty on back, whatever at the rock and roll hall, the fame acceptance says well my first moment was hearing i want to hold your hand on the radio right and then they proceed from there so that's just you know wonderfully said now if homework went by the uh, by the wayside you probably had to work to subsidize your guitar habit though right (laughs) as a kid yeah at an early age fortunately i didn't but um my you know my my mom and dad were you know they were very proud of me, but my dad was the typical dad, you know, the kid needs a job. And my mom was, he has a job, you know, they play on the weekends. He gets yeah. 
Right. Leave right. Them alone. Right. So I was a little <laughs> spoiled that way. And it seems like, you know, almost every Christmas or birthday, I got a new guitar for, and wow. it, obviously it had to be one that they used and stuff. So my parents. <laughs> and, and, and I'm sure you know, it helped that your mom was a musician. Yeah. And, and my sister was a terrific pianist, had scholarships in classical piano and all that. So it was a musical family. And yeah, my mom had had, had a great voice when she was young. And she was stifled by my grandma. She didn't want her to go out on the road with Benny Goodman style bands and stuff. So I think that that frustration she always had, she was going to be darn sure I wasn't frustrated and I was encouraged and and all that stuff. So that helped a lot. Well, yeah, I'm sure it did, because otherwise their, your parents would be saying, you know, you should be an electrician, yeah. <laughs> be a doctor or a dentist. Why are you picking up that guitar? But good yeah, for you. Absolutely. And, and and I think, you know, it was a blessing to me to fall for a group like the Beatles because it helped me as a musician, because they weren't just making the same single every six weeks. I mean, it was constant progression and constant notes I was taking in like you know can't buy me love oh oh you can start a song off with the chorus that's yeah. neat yeah. um i was just picking up stuff and and george was always doing some lead that was like what is that you know the the lead and the volume pedal swells and babies and black it, that's my guitar gently weeps long before my guitar gently weeps. He's got this guitar sounding like it's weeping all through the thing. And uh, so, yeah, yeah they I'm, were great teachers. I'm glad you brought that up, Tom, because some have said that one of the reasons why people were so surprised by the way you, they used uh, melodies and harmonies, part of it came from, I guess, their lack of very strict formal training. Yeah. And that maybe they did not, which we are thankful for, that they really didn't know how to repeat themselves, combined with they would have hated themselves if they repeated themselves because that would be too boring. They always yeah, want to do something absolutely. different. So it's yeah. like they couldn't repeat themselves and they didn't want to repeat themselves. And I think we benefit by yeah. that. No, absolutely. And and if they did if they did have any habits, it took me years to actually pick up on them. It was only like like four weeks ago that I I, I heard the end of it won't be long. And when they do the ooh at the end of that, I'm thinking Wait, that's a John song. Help is a John song. It ends with ooh, like that too. So he must kind of like that kind of thing. I, I'm always discovering stuff to this day. And I'm, in, and I'm like you guys, I've heard everything they've done a billion times. But. Yeah, and life was different back then. You didn't have the internet. You had to play the record over and over again to figure out what they were saying. You did, which made playing. it even more magical and at the same time frustrating and confusing because you were listening on a little mono record player and you couldn't really even hear half the stuff that was going on. You heard big vocals, the guitar here, that big vocals, and then the DJ going, that's brand new. And that was it. And so uh, you had to play that over and over and over again to figure out what's going on. I remember sitting in the theater at Help and watching Help the first day it came out two or three times just for the little quick shot of George Harrison's fingers going down in the beginning playing the riff to help when they're saying, won't you please? And he does a descending guitar riff. And I was like, wait, how do you do? Oh, I got to watch it again. <laughs> and well, it, it wasn't easy going through that 
Capitol Records stereo. Yeah, we'll well, put that's up. true, too. <laughs> Although I will say I am still one of the defenders of several of their botched uh, masters. I, I think I Feel Fine sounds magnificent when they get to the bridge and it's, I'm so glad it's buried in Phil Spector Reaver. It's Love glorious it. to me. And then I hear the British version, it's dry and there's no kind of, no. Uh, yeah, the Ringo sizzle and the, the yeah. symbols. And, but, yeah. okay, Professor, let's get to the meat of the story. Yeah. Now that we've, Tom has set everything up. Because like I said, when Tom and I first talked on the phone, it may have been almost two hours and his story changed you forever. You're a kindred spirit for sure. Mm-hmm. And, and then we traded pictures for like three days, yeah. you know. Yeah. So, but let's get to first of all. <coughs> excuse me, your mom. You know, you, you she was managing the band. You guys were doing gigs, and then she came to you because you kind of hit the end of the road there. And she said, "You guys should start writing your own stuff." Yeah. Yeah. How did you react to that? Was it easy for you to write songs? Well, first of all, it's, as an aside, no. Me writing a song is like wrestling a gigantic grizzly bear. And whenever I read these awful, these, these stories of John and Paul saying, oh, yeah, we wrote that real quick. Well, oh, that's, a, that's a work song. You know, like, I don't want to spoil a party. It's a word. I don't want to spoil a party. It's a magnificent song and track. But no, just to set the record straight so I don't look like some, I don't know what. But my mom was the manager of the band because she could do things for us. Not because I said, let my mom manage the band. That's the last thing I wanted. She came in one day when we were practicing and heard one of us talking about Oh man, you know, it'd be great if we could get on, get on that last train to Clarksville thing. St. Louis was doing a promo, you know, inspired by the monkeys. They were going to have a train with all the local bands on it, the very best local bands. And it was going to travel from St. Louis to Clarksville, Missouri for the day and come back. And it, you know, the best bands were going to be on it. And my mom said, what's the deal? Do you want to you guys want to play on that? I said, yeah, but like, we're just starting now. We're not going to get on that. She goes, well, tell me more about it. I'll, I'll see what I can do. And I was like, mom, just, can you make another <laughs> sandwich? Just, you know, that's all. <laughs> but, you know, it was a few days later. She was, all right, I got you on. And the rest of the group said, listen, let your mom handle this business. So that's <laughs> how that happened. And yeah, she finally, she, because she was so good at, just, you know, being, being a talker, she could talk us, uh, talk her way into anything. And she got us in all the big clubs and uh, the top places around St. Louis. Yeah. And it finally got to the point where it's like, okay, we're a big local band. Now what, you know, how, what do you do? And she came in one day and said, look, I've been reading and studying all this music and stuff. You guys need to write your own material and we have to get some money together and make a demo. And, you know, of course, the entire group stares at me. And I'm like, what? <laughs> so, well, write a song. And I, I, you know, a friend of mine, a friend of our groups said, I've got an old piano that my mom and dad don't want. If you guys can figure out a way to get it over. And they did. And uh, I wrote World of You on it. I had played piano as a, like, at age six or seven, just long enough to hate reading music. And the piano teacher would go, Tom, you're not reading the music. You're remembering this by ear, aren't you? And I said, well, I don't don't, hate reading music. So uh, I had just a little bit of background in piano, enough to play like the Beatles do, you know, 
uh, probably not as good as Paul, but like John, like chords and stuff. So I got that piano and, and managed to write World of You. And, you know, we rehearsed it and we ended up going to a local studio, yeah, to record it. And that's how it all started. And so you write this song and you get some airplay. And you Actually, were... no airplay. We wrote this song and a couple old guys, because St. Louis was not a big recording town. We went to this little cheap studio called Premier Studios in St. Louis, and there was a couple old guys, like my age, who were the engineers. And they recorded us doing this demo. And so now we had this little acetate demo thing and went home and a week or so later got a phone call. And those engineers called and said, listen, a guy from Capital was in here. Because Capitol Records had a, distrib- a distribution center in St. Louis. And we played it for him. And he wants to talk to you guys. So he's going to be calling. We can remember. And when he called, he said, listen, you know, I think you guys should talk to somebody out of Capitol. And I think they'd be really interested in signing. And that's when I started the brat routine and said, Mom, I don't, I don't want to record. I love the Beach Boys, but I don't want to record in California. I want to record it. You know, I would record where <laughs> I want to hold your hand. You know, I just figured, well, if I go in that studio, it sounds just like I want to hold your hand. And so she said, well, you know, Tom's got his heart set on going to record where the Beatles do. And he was a little taken aback, as I remember Mom relaying to me. But he said, well, if that's the case, there's a man named Roy Featherstone, EMI. You can use my name, and he's the person you would have to get in touch with, and that started it all. Yeah, it's crazy. It was like an old, it's like one of those old fifties movies you see where you watch it, and you go, "Oh yeah, right." We we we, we, we have a spinning newspaper headline to, to cover the gaps in time. Well, you know, oddly enough, right? The I guess at that time, in terms of technology, you know, Capital Out in L.A. was going to be a much more sophisticated. Oh, Capital, yeah, right? Beach Boys, the Beach Boys, they like had, in I mean, my room and all that. Yes, stuff. Yes, I mean, McCartney me. was McCartney was always so jealous. You know, he'd go out there to talk to Brian Wilson, but they yeah. had all of the tricks and all the toys, and EMI was primitive by comparison in terms of technology, yeah. but. The atmosphere, of course, is heaven. That's, you know, I can see why you would want to just be in the atmosphere for the uh, for the recording. Yeah, um, it was a much grittier sound, too, that the Beatles had. And any of the groups, the Hollies, any of them, uh, had a grittier sound. The, the Beach Boys had a very hi-fi sound to right. their stuff. I mean, you listen to, you know, listen to Beatles do Roll Over Beethoven and listen to the Beach Boys do Fun Fun. It's, two different worlds with the same basic song going on in the background and yeah that's why it's Uh, funny though maybe gritty over at uh emi and abbey road maybe gritty worked for the birth of uh british psychedelia right i mean if we're thinking there really was nothing like that going on here it went on there and goodness knows while they were doing that pink floyd was doing their piper at the gates of dawn so uh, maybe it kind of worked for it where you weren't looking for crystal clear, right? You were right. looking for the atmosphere of not crystal clear. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think that's maybe a whole Brit outlook on things. I mean, I read a, a really funny interview with Pete Townsend once where he said, uh, you know, which I agree with, he, he said, you know, in much our, our early Who record should be listened to in mono. He said, when you listen, I can see from Miles in stereo, where it's more hi-fi, the mix, and it's stereo. 
he said, it sounds like we're the carpenters. And it's true. <laughs> I mean, you hear all this beautiful harmony and it's real clean. And on the mono, it's all gritty and ground up. So, you know, I had that in my head. I didn't understand anything about recording yet. But that was, in fact, the first thing that when we went over there, Roy Featherstone said to us, when he listened to the record and all that, he said, I'll do a single. We'll, we'll do a single on that. He said, what amazes me is you want to come over here. You guys want to come over here to record. And all of our groups want to come to America to record. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I said, no, this is just fine. Yeah, take it to ride. Help hard to, no, it's okay. No. Well, uh, let's talk about you being at EMI Studios. And, and you're amazed when you first walk in. And then you start to see, you know, the Beatles around. Describe some of those experiences. Well, you know, we were doing a bit of business over there. EMI kind of felt for us and said, listen, I know your mom's doing contracts. We're doing business. You guys are probably sitting in the hotels. Blah, blah, blah. Would you like to go see where you're going to be recording? Because they had told us, listen, you know, go home for the winter and write as many songs as you can. We'll have you back in March. So he said, would you like to see where, where you're going to be recording? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they arranged for us to go to EMI one day and, and get a tour. And when we walked in, you know, I said, hi, we're Airbonds, we're supposed to have our names at the door. We're getting a tour. And it's just, oh, yeah, it's got right here. Uh, come on, I'll take you around. So there's a little kind of old guy up at the front in his little lab coat, got up and turned uh, the corner to go down the main hall. And out of nowhere, I don't remember from where, from some door comes this big, tall, funny, goofy, nice looking guy. And I say, are you Mal Evans? Mm-hmm. And he said, well, yeah, he was knocked out that he got recognized. <laughs> I was knocked out that it was Mal Evans. So, like, you know, instead of saying hi, nice to meet you, I said, Mal, so when you were in the snow, was that really, were you really in that water? He said, oh, yes, yes. I said, so how did you do that? It's like freezing. It's like 70 below zero. I said, lots of cups of coffee. That's all. And he said, what are you guys doing? And I said, we're getting a tour of the studio. And he said, oh, I can tag along. And I went, yeah, come, come. So they took us down the hallway and, you know, pointed stuff out. And fortunately, the first thing they did, rather than to the left, showing a studio three, he walked right down the steps to go to studio two and walk in the big room, which, you know, it's also got to be kind of, you also have to consider that the information that was out there back then, everybody knows what Studio 2 looks like now and what Abbey Road looks like. We didn't really know. We might have seen a picture of the Beatles of the studio here and there in a fan magazine, but we didn't have the knowledge that fans do now. And uh, we just walked into this massive room and Mal started pointing things out. He was saying, all right, so here's the mic lockers where we keep all the mics. So, so, you know, we're just listening. And immediately our drummer says, oh, my God, look over in the corner. And in the back of the room uh, is, is Ringo's magical mystery tour set. It just says <laughs> love on the front. And we're like, oh, my God, are you kidding <laughs> And uh, so, you know, and, and Mal is just oblivious. He's just in the little guard guys going, yeah, so the cable's all coming in. Yeah, I don't care, that's a drum set. Are you kidding me? And we're halfway into the studio, and Bob, the rhythm guitarist at the time, looked up at the Studio 2 glass control room window, and he said, that looks like Harris. And I looked up, 
And he couldn't really tell. I mean, if someone said that to you, yeah, your brain would say, yeah, it does. But it was too murky. And, and Mal was talking. And I said, excuse me, Mal, Mal is, that, is that George? And he looked up and said, yeah, yeah. And uh, then went back to it. And so then we do this. And I said, no, 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 wait a minute. That's George. And I said, is there any possibility that he might come down? And Mal said, no, he's very busy working on his own project, which was Wonderwall at that time. And uh, so I just did my thing. I just looked up at the window and motioned with my right hand, like, come on down like that. <laughs> and he immediately turned his back and disappeared from the window. And Bob goes, shit, why, why'd you do that? <laughs> I said, what, what do you want? It's like one chance in your life. All of a sudden, the studio two door, the control room door opened. And out comes George at the top of the steps. And we're just, we're like, we've seen a UFO land. <laughs> <laughs> and he looks down and goes, are you with a magazine? Because my mom was there. She had this big camera. And the yeah. rest of us are all dressed up in our newly bought Carnaby Street stuff. And I said, no, 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 no. We're just, we're a group. We're getting a tour. We're going to be recording here. We're just getting a tour of the studio. Mouse showing us around. I was talking a million miles a minute. Mm. And he said, oh, all right. And starts coming down the steps. And Bob goes, he's coming down. <laughs> so... <laughs> You know, we were just, I, you know, boy, you can imagine what we were. We were just frozen in our steps. And he comes down and puts his right hand out and says, oh, I'm George. And, uh, you know, he just stood there for a minute. And we all said, do you have time for maybe a couple of questions? I said, do you have time for maybe a couple of guitar questions? And he said, sure. And my mom interrupts like we're just a bunch of kids, including George. She has her camera and she said, excuse me, George, is it okay? And holds the camera up and goes, yeah, it's all right. So <laughs> she starts taking pictures. And my first question to him was, I had had an argument with a friend at school who was a good guitarist. And he, we were always trying to figure out how they got the sound in Nowhere Man on the lead guitar. And um, it's kind of commonly known now. It wasn't then. My friend at school said, Tom, that's a Stratocaster. It's a fin. I said, the Beatles don't use Fender guitars. They use a Gretsch. And, they, you know. and uh, I said, George, um, do you remember what you did to get the sound in Nowhere Man on the lead guitar parts? He said, yes, two Fenders, I believe. John and I played it. <laughs> and I said, Stratocasters were the toggle switch jammed right in the middle. So it's in between pickups. And he said, yeah, I believe so. And he said, I think they compressed it a bit up in the box, he called it. <laughs> I said, oh, great. So we... Um, we just kept firing off questions. He tried to get a word in once in a while. We said, where are y'all from? We said, St. Louis. And oh, um, okay. he said, oh, I have a sister near mm-hmm. there. I tried to get to go see her once, and I ended up in some hick town, he said. <laughs> <laughs> and I started laughing. And, you know, like an idiot, I said, we saw you at Bush Stadium. Do you remember playing there? And he went, vaguely. That was <laughs> his favorite word, because he couldn't remember much of anything. And... Um, I kept working them through songs. I, I asked about how to get you into my life and said, how did you get your guitar to hold out that long and the little guitar break in the middle? And uh, that's a good example of what I was saying. We didn't have fidelity enough to hear. I know what it is now, but back then it just felt like it went like that. And he said, it was a classic. He said, was the brass in that one? And I said, yeah, there's a lot of brass, man. So, <laughs> and he said, oh, it's probably the brass holding it out underneath. And so we just kept, you know, feeding him questions. And 
asking him if he heard uh, it, you guys keep in touch with the music that's coming out in America and all that. He said, yeah, the good stuff we do. And, uh, and I remember him, I, I remember keep, I was asking about sounds a lot. And he said, you know, the thing is, people are always asking us how we get sounds and how we do things. And the truth is we cop as much from others as they do us. And we were laughing. <laughs> and he, out of nowhere, he said, have you heard Eric Clapton? And I think the other two guys in the band were fans of Cream. I, I hadn't really gotten into him. And we all said, yeah. And he said, well, you know, he practices like 12 hours a day. And then they called me a guitarist. And I said, you're fine. <laughs> you're good fine. <laughs> you do it just fine. So, yeah. So it went on for a while like that. I asked him. I wanted to confirm that Paul played the lead bits in Ticket to Ride. And he said, yeah, it was an Epiphone, I believe. And I said, well, what, what, what do you do when you're not playing lead? And he said, oh, oh there's always something to do like that. And you know, it went on for a few more minutes. And finally he said, oh, I, this is one of the big points from this story. This is when we realized that George Harrison, unlike Paul, who we met and the, you know, the rest of them, George is totally different than what you think, or at least in that year in that era, totally different than what you would picture him as being. He is really, was really funny. He was not this kind of quiet, dark, dour, sometimes saying something clever person. I said, I had worked him up to Sergeant Pepperson. And I said, so in getting better, and, and, and before I could finish the question, he jumped back about a foot and acted like he was holding an air guitar and said, oh, you mean it's getting better? And started strumming like an imaginary guitar. Mm -hmm. And we were all laughing. Um, he was way funny like that, would suddenly just hit around. And I was really impressed with that because I, I thought, you know, he hates the press. He doesn't like any personal questions. I got to watch what I'm saying here. And he was anything but. He was so laid back. And so it was pretty wonderful. And that was our first big Beatles experience at Abbey Road. Wow. <laughs> he, finally, you know, he finally said, I'm sorry, I got to get back. And uh, we shook hands and he went upstairs. And I looked over at Mal and Mal gave me a look like, not bad. No, good, good one. Now, I, I want to, you know, give kudos to your mom. She's a great manager, but a terrible photographer. Is that yeah. <laughs> That was the worst thing in the world. We got home and my dad had actually got her that camera. It was a really good one, but it was more of a photographer's camera. You had to know what you were doing and she didn't. And I don't know how many pictures she took, but there was only one that could be salvaged. And I remember she said she spent over $100, which back then, I don't know what it was, at a local lab trying to get it so that you could see what it was. And nowadays, it's it's not too bad. We've done a lot of graphic work on it. It's pretty, it's sharp enough to know that it's George Harrison. But yeah, it was a shame. It was, we, we were <laughs> like, mom said, the pictures. And I said, what do you mean the pictures? Yeah, it was a bad, you know. <laughs> Yeah, you know, a Polaroid swinger camera maybe would have done. <laughs> it would have been great. A little Kodak Instamatic would have done the trick. You know, yeah, I still have a million of those around. <laughs> but so let's get to the next question. Tell us about walking through the halls and overhearing sessions. Well, yeah, I think that was the biggest time that happened. We did have one brief time where we saw them doing old brown shoe and they were doing the 
who knows, baby, you could come for me part over and over again. They couldn't sing it right or something. We were peeking through curtains to see that. But the, the big time that it happened was when, once again, that second trip, I, I think I said this to you in our conversation, Chachi, the, I don't know what was wrong with the world back then. I know they had fax machines and things, but for some reason, we had to go back a second time to sign contracts and things. And only my mom and I so it's too expensive for the whole band. So we went and EMI again said, so what are you doing? Just sitting around the hotel. And I said, yeah, kind of. And they said, would you like to see a session? We'll see who's on the, on the schedule this week. And they named a bunch of people I've never heard of, you know, Michael so-and-so. And so I'm going, <laughs> and they said, the Hollies. And I went, yes, yeah, I would like to see a Hollies <laughs> session. So they set it up for me to go um, see the Hollies and I went in and watched their session, and that was a whole story in and of itself. But after, you know, spending a reasonable amount of time there and not wanting to overstay my welcome, I finally thanked them all, and they were all really great. They were super nice. And when I left Studio 3, which is where they were, I went to the same kind of position where the guard was that took us on the tour. And I was just, I was about ready to call a taxi and go back to the hotel, and I just happened to say so what's going on later on the schedule what you doing tonight and he said well of course you know the boys are in so Mm -hmm. boys Mm -hmm. that means they're here (laughs) and I just about died I said oh Beatles are here tonight he said yeah they're there now and I went oh wow so my mind is racing and I'm thinking I gotta stay here I gotta figure out a way to stay here for a few minutes I said do you mind if I go down to the canteen and grab soda before I leave or I'm gonna call a taxi in a little bit he said yeah sure run I'm gonna walk down the hall and this is by now it's probably I don't know maybe it's seven or eight at night I don't know and I'm walking down the hall making as if I'm going to the steps that lead downstairs where the canteen and the entrance to studio two is and I go down the hall and I'm hearing just this raucous rock thing going on which of course i don't know what the song is because it's not released yet so why should i think it's who it is <laughs> and i'm walking down the hall the walls are like vibrating i'm like god what is this stuff and i walk down the hall and there's a glass window to my right and um, i'm just kind of walking down and I look over because that's obviously where all the sound is coming from. And I look over to the right and all four Beatles are standing there, two and a half feet from me through the glass, <laughs> standing there playing what is later to be your blues. And I just, you know, I didn't have time to go think it out. I did the natural thing. I totally froze in my steps and was staring at them. And fortunately, they were all feeling no pain and not looking through the glass at all. Ringo's eyes were half closed. John was singing. George was looking down at his guitar, and Paul, I don't remember what he was doing, but obviously nobody noticed me there. And I mean, this is close. This is literally two feet, like two feet glass beetles. And uh, I'm thinking, wait a minute. Last time I saw all four beetles, uh, was it Bush Stadium on the second baseline? And now they're, are you kidding me? And I just rose and I was kind of caught up in what they were doing. George actually dropped his pick and bent down and picked it up while they continued playing. And I hung around and I kept looking to see whether they were going to look up. Because if they looked up, I was going to keep walking, start walking, but they didn't. And uh, finally they ended 
the last chord of it. And I heard, I'm pretty sure it was George Martin through the sliding window that was, did join from studio to control room, joined this little room that they were in. It's, and I, I, I guess they slid the window open or something. I heard somebody say, so, 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 and I heard, and then John goes, no, it doesn't matter as long as you got the voice. And everybody started laughing. So <laughs> at that point, they were starting to come to, and I just got it. I just kept walking. <laughs> I did, in fact, go down and hang around the canteen for a little bit. And when I came back up, they were in the control room and they were playing, whoa, you get your shit, sexy city, whoa. And then stop the tape, rewind, whoa, you get your shit. And it was Paul doing an overdub. He was down in the studio with his bass. And they were overdubbing, I guess they were punching in a bass part or something because they kept rewinding that part over and over. And I just stood there for a second. And then some wacky teenage girl that looked like she came from, you know, hate Ashbury came in, was standing outside the control room door. And Paul comes to the control room door of one of them. No, it was Paul. He comes to the control room door and says, oh, you guys here? I said, no, I'm, I'm not. Yeah, I'm out of here. And I just walked. But she stood there trying to reason with him. And he was saying, yeah, but see, if you're watching us while we're trying to recall, we can't, you know, it's hard to, and I heard that going on. I just got out of there. So I didn't want to be associated with her in any way. So yeah, that was my big, I watched the Beatles moment. Um, Chachi, that's, that's, that was the dead center story that I, I'd, I'd wanted to get to. I'm glad that we brought that out because what an interesting time. First, yeah. I've got to give Tom, I've got to give you great, great credit and mad props for the way you easily slip into very subtle, but probably act for oh. all the Beatles, not done broadly, done very, very well, and really within the fabric of the story. Chachi and I have uh, talked to many people over the years who may have claimed that, hey, I was on the rooftop, you know, yeah. when they, for the, and, and some of them were, but if yeah. all those who claimed were there were actually there, the rooftop would have held 50,000 people, right? <laughs> but true. the way you heard your blues, which is a, a fascinating moment in those whole sort of white album recording sessions, which yeah. supposedly were filled with tension and they were like four individual musicians using the other three yeah. as yeah. sidemen, right? Yeah. But not that song. Even reports about it say, you know what? That's when they really jammed together, when they still had those moments of all being together. And you were right there in the hallway. Uh, that's standing that's, right there watching them do it. And of course, yeah. you know, none of that was known yet. We didn't know what a year blues was. I remember coming back home and telling the group that I saw them recording and they were playing. I said, they're just, they were just playing some like three chord blues thing it was crazy screaming and they said you're kidding really yeah they're doing a blues thing i said apparently i don't know what did you think when you heard the white album and you heard that track did it, uh, did it, it just uh, i mean it, it literally brought me back to being frozen in the hallway that's exactly <laughs> how it sounded to me yeah. i mean it, it just sounded like that that you hear those low thundering guitars and just imagine them shaking the walls but the sound that's how it sounded yeah it really did mm. it was unbelievably loud it was because mm. they were in a tiny room this is like four guys playing really heavy in a tiny room and i can't say that i heard i i don't remember hearing john sing particularly he was singing into the mic with headphones on the guitars were loud i don't i i couldn't hear what he was doing but it was well, funny at the yeah, end yeah i mean they, they, they could have recorded that anywhere right yeah. within the complex they could dictate where at that point where they were oh, going yeah. to be 
and what have you. Yeah. But they chose that particular spot for yeah. a reason. And maybe yeah. they were playing, you know what? We want to play it like this in this room. So, so some schmuck in the hallway could feel what we're doing. <laughs> this is possible. Who knows? I mean, I think, you know, the other, the other time that I saw them record was not really watching them record, but it was the night they did Ballad of John Yoko. We were supposedly record, set to record that night, but this whoever it was wasn't out of Studio 2 yet. So we were sitting on the couch up front, which is kind of across from that desk where the guard stands. And Beatles were in studio through three, or Paul and John were. And again, you know, we don't know what they're doing. All we know is Paul comes out of the studio part of studio three, walks toward us because he has to get into the control room for studio through three. Back then you had to, anyway, it's different now. And uh, when he walked toward us, you know, our eyes met, we're sitting on the couch and I went hi, and he, you know, and I, like that, walked in the control room. A few minutes later, comes out of the control room, goes back in the studio. We hear music playing, old rock and roll style stuff. After a while, studio opens up again. Paul comes out again, looks over, points his finger at us, and goes, "Not going to say hi this time." And <laughs> he's just, you know, he's just like it would be in help or something. He's just mm-hmm. like a. Paul was like the nicest. I will. I told Chachi. I'm pretty sure I told Chachi that I would. These people that talk about Paul being a ramrod and a jerk and all that—they just don't know. I mean, this is one of the nicest guys, and I'm sure he can be petulant. I'm sure we all have our moments, but in general, there's things he did uh, when we were there that that if you were a jerk, you wouldn't do it. And he was just super to us. He was the eternal gentleman insanely patient just you know the world's greatest guy to me it was like seeing it really was it really was like just the way they was before they was meeting (laughs) now now and then transfer over to a nightclub where you run into paul right you're asking for autographs yeah i mean that was our first meeting with a Beatle. You would think it was George, but that was, I guess, Beatles week for us because George was later in the week in that studio. And we, again, were always being, I guess our, our health was being checked up on by EMI all the time, asking us if we were having fun, if we were seeing any London sites. Have you been to the discos? Which is when nightclubs were called then. And uh, we said, yeah. And they said, been to speakeasy. And I said, we tried, we couldn't get in, it's private. And they said, oh, we'll get you in, we'll leave your name on it. When do you want to go? And we just randomly said some time during the week. And we went in, it's a very strange club. It, it burned down, but it was a very popular club with celebrities because they could go there and not be bugged by fans. It was private. And we went in, it was below the street. You had to go down steps to get into this little hidden away place. And we went in, our names were at the door. And, you know, like a 17-year-old dummy kid, I'm, I have no tax that I say to the guy, so is there anybody famous here tonight? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And at 17, come on. And he said, he said, well, Michael Caine was here earlier. He did, did he mention Diana Ross? He mentioned some couple other people. And then he ended with, and Paul's here. Mm-hmm. And I went, oh, Paul McCartney's here? And he said, yes. And I, we just tried to be cool. And we went, okay. Now remember, we have not, met a beetle the only beetles we've seen are on second baseline like i said bush stage 
So this is insane that we know that we're going to walk into this club and somewhere in this club, which is not that big, is Paul McCartney. So we're, or was anyway, unless he left already. So we walk in, there's the club is divided into two sections. One section is tables everywhere, a little stage for local bands sometimes to play. And, you know, you drink and sit at those tables. And then the other part of the club is behind glass. And it's for when, I guess, the celebs come in and want to eat dinner. So the food is served back there. So we're sitting at, naturally, the outside tables, had a couple of drinks, listening to amazing music because they played music in those clubs that we had never heard of. They were playing 10 Soldier by Small Faces. And I was like, whoa, what is that? And really cool stuff. And, you know, we're just looking around and all of a sudden, the door to the glass door section opens and out comes Paul. And I mean, he is dressed like, like, I don't know what it was. It could have been a tux, but he is dressed to kill and just looks like royalty. And he comes out and goes kind of sideways down a hall. And we went, oh my God, he's leaving. And, and I, I, one of the guys said, no, you can't get out that way. You must be going to the bathroom. And so they're all like, go say something. So what do you mean, go say something? (laughs) He comes back down out of the, down this little short hallway and starts heading toward the door that goes into the glass section again. And, you know, uh, these guys are like gently pushing me going, go say something. And I just find myself like edged out so far into the middle of where he's coming that he looks at me and I said, uh, excuse me, Paul, we're a group from St. Louis and we're going to be recording at EMI. We just wonder if you might have time for a couple of questions. And he said, oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> Leans back against the glass. Then the group starts coming around me, the cowards. Now, they, <laughs> now they're ready to talk. And, uh, you know, we got, he, he had a drink. I think he had a drink in his hand. I, I can't remember, but he may have still had a drink in his hand. I don't know. But he leaned back and he said, where are you all from? And, and we said, St. Louis. And again, my first question, I should have told this story first. My first question to him was, Paul, do you remember what you guys did to get the guitar set in Nowhere Man? And he said, yeah, I, I think it, it was a Gretsch, I believe. Now, I played a Gretsch. There's no Gretsch that sounds like the guitar is nowhere, man. So, but I didn't want to say, no, it wasn't a Gretsch ball. So I said, oh, wow, thank you. And I remember when I met George and asked him that question, and he told us it was two Fenders, I believe. I said, we met Paul the other night at, at Speakeasy, and he said it was a Gretsch. And, and George went, no, it's two Fenders. So <laughs> the night with Paul, he asked a lot of questions about, oh, it's a band, what's your three guitars, drums? Okay, yeah, right. And you're going to be recording EMI. And we, I remember saying, yeah, we've just been following you all our lives. We, we can't wait to be recording there. And he said, oh, well, I'll be a good luck there. And all of a sudden, our bass player reaches over my shoulder with one of our band cards and says, oh, Paul, I know this is a lot to ask. And hands him a card and a pen. And Paul takes it and goes, oh, it's a lot to ask. And starts signing it, right? And then he turns it over and dumb us on the front of the car. It says, the Erevons, smashing English sound. <laughs> and he looks at the front and he goes, 
how smashing English sound is it? Said, well, you know, it's like, you just kind of smile. And they said, can I have one? Do you have another? We gave him one because it was, it was a black felt kind of neat feeling card. So we left him alone. I don't remember what other things we asked. It wasn't too much. It was mainly just the whole idea that you're, you know, that you're talking to Paul McCartney. And the last thing you remember, you were in a row at some cinema watching Help or or watching Ed Sullivan's show, and now he's standing right there talking to you. It's just, it's kind of, it's really hard to explain. I mean, uh, it, it, for a kid, anyway. Maybe I'd be different today. I really doubt it. I, I was just thunderstruck. And so what happened was we said thank you. We went back and sat down, and we made this remark some words to the effect of this autograph is going to be fantastic in our scrapbook the Earlhorn's big scrapbook and the bass player just Nolan I said I asked for it it's not going in a scrapbook it's my autograph <laughs> so, so I immediately I mean my fa- I still remember my face flushing going I you know thinking I can't believe I'm gonna to have to deal with this I mean this is a once-in-a-lifetime thing. We don't know we're ever going to see him again or meet George or do any of the great things we ended up doing. But I think this is my once-in-a-life thing, and this guy's going to take the autograph. No, no, this isn't going to happen. And we, and we somehow killed the rest of the night. I don't know how long it was, but the lights started coming up, and I, I said, I'm going to ask. I'm just going to go ask him for three more autographs. And they said, you can't do that. I said, I'm just to heck with it screw him screw nolan i mean not paul and i got three more cards and a pen and as he came out and you david is beetle historian you can tell me whether i'm nuts or not i've tried to research it and there seems to be a possibility that this is the case and there was a slight window this is 1968 and paul comes out and i would swear that he was with not Linda, but Jane Asher. And one reason I know is I had a huge crush on her as a teenager. (laughs) And she was dressed like Paul. They were like they had just come from a play or something. She looked like a princess and him a prince. And they started walking out. And I swear, I walked up to him and I said, excuse me, Paul, I'm so embarrassed. Our bass player got a little bit possessive with your autograph. I can barely (laughs) finish before he said, Jeff, you have a few more. Do you have a pen? And I gave him a pen. And he got down on one knee and used his other knee to write Paul McCartney, Paul McCartney, Paul McCartney three times and said, there you go. And I said, oh, my God. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> and he got up and left. And that's why to this day when people go, oh, Paul McCartney, he's a total jerk. He said, no, a total jerk would never have done that. You know, yeah. he, would, he would have said, look, I gave you an autograph. I talked to you. I got to go. You know, he was just wonderful. So that wow. was my first meeting with him. Isn't that amazing, Professor? Yeah. Chachi, you know what this is? This is everything we thought of with the with the segment. You know, it gives us the history, gives us the music, uh, little moments that you know. I mean, obviously, one of us might think, "Oh, well, you know, it, 
you have that card sort of wrapped or frozen in amber or something like that. It's framed. Uh, yeah, there you go. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. no, it is uh, fantastic. I'm I'm so glad I got to hear from the source himself that that your blues from the hallway, oh, um, yeah. because I was fascinated the first time that, that I read that. So you know, it's great. Everything that we hope for, yeah. Chachi. Now, Tom, unfortunately, we're running out of time. We're going to have yeah. to invite you back for part two of your story. The, part two, I'll do the John Lennon story. The John Lennon story, Alan Parsons, Norman Smith. Oh, yeah. Uh, doing yeah. the sessions with you. I mean, there's yeah. a lot to go over. Oh, that'd be a lot of fun. And we would love to have you back, and we do want to thank you. Go to airvons.com. Is that correct, Tom? It was. I've let that website go because nobody goes to websites anymore, it seems. It's all YouTube channel stuff. So I'll send you the links on that Mark at, at the label has set up where there's some videos and there's some stuff. Yeah. Well, thank you, Fantastic. Tom. Uh, please hang with us for a moment. And sure. Professor uh, Gallant, thank you today. Thank you, Chachi. We've been listening to the great stories of Tom Hartman at just 17 years old, ruling the world with that ring. A real brat. A real lucky <laughs> brat what I was. My God. Well, God bless you and your family. And I hope your kids realize the accomplishments you've had in your life because that's one of them one of them in particular does i mean i i always tell leah my middle daughter i just wish there was a way that you could have been with me she's hmm. such a major beatles fan wow. Wow. I, I said i wish you could have been stan she loves george harrison and it would have been yeah it would have been great to have a little time tunnel and be able to take her hmm. bring her with me well, we've been talking to Tom Hartman, and thank you for listening to our podcast, Get Back to the Beatles. I will tell you, within the next few weeks, we're going to ask Tom to return to come on my Beatles radio show, Breakfast with the Beatles in New England, heard in three states. I want to have you on there. I want to play Swinging London, a great song, because you Thanks. were in London during Swinging London, which is a pretty amazing uh, place to be. Yeah, that's the way that song rings true to me because it really is all about our stay there. It's a great song. We've been talking to Tom Hartman. Tom, thank you very much. You've been listening to Get Back to the Beatles. Thank you to David Yaz from the Boston Podcast Network. He produces our program. And if you would like your own podcast on the Boston Podcast Network, Mr. David Yaz at bostonpodcastnetwork.com can help you as he works with us. And look, at we have our sign, Professor, right behind David Yaz's head. It's up there. There it is, our little logo. Product uh, placement. Tom Hartman. What's that, Professor? I'm sorry. Product placement. Product placement. Tom, David, thank you. David, it was so nice to meet you, too. It's, it's, it's wonderful to know that there's people like you teaching young kids about all this stuff. It's it's amazing. I would love to sit down with you, you too, David, and just fill in the empty spots I don't know. And there's plenty of them. So. <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you, Tom Hobman. Tom, stick with us for a moment so we can say goodbye off the podcast. And thank you again. You've been listening to the Boston Podcast Network. Get back to the Beatles. Have a great day. You previous episodes include David Stark and Ivor Davis and Leslie Cavendish. Lots of episodes for you to hear. Get back to the Beatles. Take care of yourself. We'll catch you next time. Bye-bye. Make sure to check for the latest episode of Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi LaPrette at pod617.com. The Boston Podcast Network.